This week, have we taken on too much in the conflict in Libya? Libya is a war of choice and it should be paid for outside the defence budget. I don't think it really should be impacting on the defence establishment. And are the Falkland Islands really at risk of Argentinian invasion? A major change in American attitudes. They're calling it the islands of the Malvinas. If they have American support, I'd have said it's near 100%. Headlines. The MOD and Clarence House are refusing to comment on reports that Prince Harry could return to Afghanistan. It's claimed he's been cleared to return to the front line flying Apache helicopters. NATO aircraft carried out coordinated strikes against key targets in Libya's capital overnight. RAF tornadoes and typhoons bombed Colonel Gaddafi's large military vehicle depot in Tripoli. Al-Qaeda's confirmed a former deputy to Osama bin Laden will be the organization's new leader. Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was born in Egypt, was always seen as the man most likely to succeed bin Laden. Two men have been charged with plotting to harm and rob the singer Joss Stone. Kevin Liverpool and Junior Bradshaw were arrested near the singer's home in Devon. They've been remanded in custody. And a juror who contacted a defendant using Facebook has been jailed for eight months. Joanne Frail admitted using the website to send messages to Jamie Stewart, who was acquitted in a drugs trial in Manchester last year. Is the military operation over Libya a step too far for Britain's armed forces? Well, that certainly appears to be the view of the head of the Navy, First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope, who warned this week that ministers will have to make some tough decisions if the offensive against Colonel Gaddafi's forces goes beyond the current timetable. And with the Libyan leader still in control of Tripoli and the conflict on the ground seemingly deadlocked, it's hard to see Britain's military role there ending by the autumn. But Sir Mark Stanhope's boss, Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir David Richards, insists there's no deadline for operations in Libya. We can sustain this operation as long as we can. He was actually answering a different question that's been misconstrued. But we can sustain this operation as long as we choose to. Absolutely clear on that. While others have more sympathy with Sir Mark's comments, Rear Admiral Chris Parry is a former senior official at the MOD. I think if we look at the words in detail, he's actually being quite careful. But what he is doing is fundamentally criticising the settlement from the Strategic Defence and Security Review. Uh, And he's saying we've simply cut very quickly and uh, our commitments at the moment exceed our resources. Do you agree with his assertion that we won't be able to continue operations in Libya much past the summer unless we make cuts elsewhere? I think in tandem with what uh, is happening in terms of redundancies and the other cuts to uh, the Royal Navy's structure, uh, particularly in terms of the number of hulls, that may well be the case. I think a certain amount of management uh, in both the maintenance routines and the deployment patterns will allow us to uh, meet the requirements flexibly, but I think it will be a struggle. Do you think it's time that the Defence Review was looked at again? Uh, Without question. Um, I'm one of those who've said from day one that the uh, Strategic Defence and Security Review was a fiscally uh, driven review and not one that was driven by our strategic interests either now or in the future. We need a fundamental relook at this. Um, the government has been forced to relook at their plans for the National Health Service. Uh, I don't see why they shouldn't feel uh, equally concern stricken about uh, relooking at defence. 
If we need to relook at defence and if we need to make cuts elsewhere, if Libya goes on much past the summer, where do you see those cuts as needing to come from? Presumably, you would say not the Royal Navy. No, I would say that actually uh, Libya is a war of choice and it should be paid for outside the defence budget from the uh, Treasury Reserve. Uh, this is a, a war that we chose to get involved in, and I don't think it really should be impacting on the defence establishment. What we do have to do is reorder uh, the way we integrate our forces from all three services to make sure we get the maximum effect from our defence uh, posture, uh, both now and in the future. And I think at the uh, start of that, we have to revisit the strategic assumptions uh, that led to the last SDSR. And uh, let's uh, have a look at what we need and then see what it's going to cost us. Rear Admiral Chris Perry there. Well, to discuss this, I'm joined by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee and on the line by James Blitz, the Financial Times defence correspondent. James, uh, let's start with you if we can. Mark Sanhope and David Richards seem to have opposing views on this. Who do you think's got it right? Well, I was at the briefing with Mark Stanhope on Monday, and I don't think he said anything particularly exceptional, frankly. He was asked a straight question about whether the operation in Libya could be sustained, and he said that if we go on for another three months, we're simply going to have to rebalance forces elsewhere and, and move assets from other operations and, um, and, and, and deployments, and, and that's what he was saying. He didn't go into too much specifics about that, but... That, that surely must be the case. I mean, Libya was seen as a six-month operation when we went into it in March. Once the six months happens, you are going to have to look at what you have in Afghanistan and elsewhere and see whether you can move that into the Libya theatre. So Mark uh, did say, though, that the operation would have been easier with the Ark Royal at our disposal and, and, and the Harriers. Is there a sense though, that we're not properly equipped for what we've undertaken in Libya? Yes, he was very careful in what he said on Ark Royal and Harriers. Uh, on the one hand, he said that if we had it, then there would be a much shorter flying time for Harriers to get to the Libyan coastline than what you have with Tornado and Typhoon having to fly from southern Italy. So there would have been a huge advantage there. On the other hand, he was also very clear that Harrier would not have had at its disposal the ability to fire targeted weapons uh, at Libya's um, tanks and artillery. So it wouldn't have been possible to use Harrier in this current conflict. So although he said that there would have been some extra choices, he was very clear that the presence of carrier and harrier, if I can put it that way, would not have been decisive in any way. Uh, Christopher Lee, what do you make of uh, the First Sea Lord's comments this week? Well, they were very largely the sort of comments he was making to the House of Commons Defence Committee about three weeks ago, so in that sense. The other thing is that when the Chief of Defence Staff, uh, General Sir David Richards, said, uh, well, basically, you know, the guy's talking nonsense uh, and that we can sustain the war, that was not what the First Sea Lord was saying. He was talking about the Navy. Can the Navy do it? I thought it was interesting when he said uh, we might have to withdraw forces or use forces from home waters. Well, at the moment, there's one towed array frigate and a store ship in home waters, so that wasn't going to do very much. But what was the crucial point about all this? Uh, And as as, as James says, it it widens out into we've got the money, etc. The key date for all this is not whether you can do three months in in uh, more off the Libya coast, it's 2015. Because that is when you got to start saying we will pay or bring new money in for the 2020 ambition of the Strategic Defence Review. And that, at the moment, is Mark Stanhope's greatest concern. So, James, is there just some more jostling for position going on here in terms of cuts and spending going forward? Is it a political game being played? Well, as I think Christopher has said, I think he's put his finger absolutely on the central issue, which is that 
we have a vision for 2020 for the British Armed Forces. We're cutting over the next four years, as everybody knows. But then the British um, sort of deployment, or the, the, the configuration for the British Armed Forces grows again to 2020. We have a single operational carrier. We have the Joint Strike Fighter. We have the new fleet of astute submarines. We have a new platform for the deterrent. But as Christopher says, the government has to say whether there is going to be a real terms increase in defense spending after 2015 or not to meet that long-term goal. That is the overall, that's the big political problem that's facing defense. And I think that's why the service chiefs are very privately, Sir Mark perhaps a bit more publicly, are anguished because they have these requirements being made of them, but they just don't know whether the government is going to pay over the long term to keep the kind of forces we need. Christopher, let's just bring it back to the the strategy in in Libya, if we can, for a minute. How long do you see this going on? What is the end game? Uh, The end game now, the end game, or has been for some time, is to remove uh, Colonel Gaddafi. Um, um, That is very simple. It's a long way from the original United Nations Resolution, 1973, which says you are there to defend the population the civilians. We've gone over that sort of length. It is now also a question of the willingness and not just of the United Kingdom but of NATO to maintain the pressure that's on him now. That is going to be one of the crucial issues, I should think, over the next three or four weeks. James, Chris Parry said to us on an interview on British Forces News during the week that he wouldn't rule out boots on the ground in Libya. Is that, are we any closer to that, do you think? I don't agree with that at all. I think boots on the ground and a combat role for the United Kingdom or any other NATO country is absolutely unthinkable. I simply do not believe we will see it. I don't think there's the slightest bit of planning that's happening. I think, as Christopher says, the key issue is whether NATO is really prepared to resource the air campaign in the next phase. I mean, I've read a piece in the paper today which pointed out that we're now into the 78th day of this campaign the NATO cooperation over Kosovo in 1999 removed Milosevic from Kosovo in 78 days. It was over at this point. But if you actually look at the number of sorties flown over Kosovo and Serbia in 1999, it was three times more air sorties, three times more strike sorties. At this stage of the campaign, there were four times more aircraft flying over Serbia than we have today flying over Libya. And the problem we have is the U.S. is not on the front foot in any way in this campaign. And at the same time, other countries which have major air assets, Germany, Poland, Spain, the Netherlands, are just not involved. And that, I think, is the fundamental problem. It's really a question of whether you can intensify the air operation in this next phase or not. My guess is we're not going to be able to. Okay, James, Christopher, thank you very much for your uh, thoughts. Stay with us. Still to come this week, what really happened in the Syrian town where more than 100 security personnel died? When uh, we are walking in the streets, uh, shouting we want freedom, the security feel angry and kill the people. As the head of the Navy warns our operation in Libya is stretching us too far, the man who led the Naval Task Force to the Falklands almost 30 years ago says cuts in Britain's defence budget means there's nothing we could do to stop Argentina retaking the islands. Admiral Sir John Sandy Woodward says America's given clear signs it won't intervene to stop Argentina and he fears if the Falklands were invaded, 
we'd be helpless. The key point is to alert the government to what looks like a major change in American attitudes. Obama appears to be uh, pretty scathing about European efforts towards NATO, not least in respect of Libya. And uh, they're calling it the islands of the Malvinas is a straw in the wind, I think, to American attitudes to the whole thing. The question is, how much can we afford to do and how much are we prepared to do? While we're still engaged in Afghanistan, we're engaged in Libya, we haven't got anything to spare. Well, the Prime Minister is insisting the sovereignty of the Falklands is non-negotiable. As long as the Falkland Islands want to be sovereign British territory, they should remain sovereign British territory. Full stop. End of story. So is there an imminent threat to the Falkland Islands? Well, let's talk to uh, Sharon Holford, a member of uh, the Falklands Legislative Assembly. Sharon, thank you very much for joining us. We just heard uh, Sandy Woodward say he thinks Argentina will invade and America won't do anything to stop it. Do you feel at risk? No, I do not feel at risk. We're in the same position that we've been in for many, many years. And obviously it's not for me to um, comment on American foreign policy. So what do you think of Sandy Woodward's decision to speak out in this way? Well, we live in a, a world where we can all say what we wish. It's a democratic society. He has the right to speak and say what he wishes. I don't actually agree with everything he says, and I think he is more than likely more concerned about the defence cuts than anything else. Are you concerned about the US position, which seems to be sort of manoeuvring itself more in line with Argentina than the UK? Um, I would not necessarily agree with that statement. A lot of this has come out of the recent OAS meeting, and what people haven't or haven't seemed to have taken on board is that this is a meeting that happens every year, and the wording in the document that was signed this year is the same that has been signed year upon year for years. The US, though, they don't refer to it as the Falklands, do they? There's, there does seem to be uh, um, a shift in, in their attitude in some way, but you don't think there is? I don't believe um, there is any change, no. Uh, Christopher, let's just bring you uh, in on this one. For, there's a, a distinction to be made, isn't there, between uh, us being unable to defend the Falklands should we need to and it being at risk of imminent attack. What do you yeah. think the situation is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's, let's take the first one. Uh, uh, could we defend it? Uh, the government says, yes, we could defend it because we've now got a squadron down there and there's, the, and there's also the runway. Well, the runway can be knocked out, even though you can repair runways in sort of 24 hours. Uh, that doesn't wash either. What Sandy Woodward was really saying was not about the defence of the Falklands in that sense. He, he was really saying, listen, with the assets we've got now, we couldn't do the Falklands again. And that includes the so-called stuffed, the ships taken up for trade, you know, the merchant ships. Nor could we do Sierra Leone again. And that was really the nub of it. Because it's the Falklands, because it's a sensitive subject, the whole thing is taken up and are the Argentinians about to invade? Look at the political situation in Argentina. The answer is at the moment very, very, very unlikely because they don't have the assets that they had in 1982 anyway. Uh, Sharon Holford, just a final question to you. Are, you. are you happy with the the level of military presence in the Falkland Islands at this point? Well, I always say happy is not the right, perhaps the correct word, but I'm more, definitely more than content. OK, Sharon. Sharon Holford, thank you very much for joining us uh, from the Falkland Islands. Let's, let's flesh this argument out a little bit. What, what is the political position that the US is in here, Christopher? Well, first and foremost, look at the uh, political composition of the United States and the voters now. It's got one of the biggest Latin 
uh, or Latino uh, voting populations that it's ever had. But it's also the, the, the Americans have got to take a position as far as South America is concerned. The Organization of American States, which includes the, Southern, uh, the Latin American countries, the Americans are very, very keen that the whole sort of, if you like, a left-wing revolution that's gone through much part of uh, South America, that they have influence. They're losing influence in that area. It's much easier to go into the United Nations and create something which most of them will not object to. The late Richard Holbrook, who was the guy that fixed American political opinion for us in 1982 when it was going the other way, uh, he said, come the crunch, if there is another crunch the same thing would happen. The Americans would not abandon the United Kingdom. The fact that the United Kingdom couldn't go down there anyway is another story. Well, uh, still with us is uh, the Financial Times defence correspondent James Blitz. James, you've been listening in to the chat for the last two or three minutes or so. What's your take on the uh, Falkland situation? My take on it is I think Sandy Woodward's um, comments in the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph do have to be listened to a bit. Uh, we're in a situation now where, yes, we have 1,000 uh, troops on the island. We have um, a squadron of uh, typhoon jets. Uh, we have some shipping in the area. But the fact is that if the Argentinians were to attack, it's not inconceivable that they would, but if they were to, we could put up a fight. That's what the Ministry of Defence says. But we would have to get reinforcements down there fairly quickly. And with the absence of a carrier over the next five to ten years, and the absence of a good deal of the, of the kind of stuff we had 20, 25 years ago, I think it would be very difficult for us to sustain an operation for very long. And I think that that is a worry and something which I think ministers probably ought to reflect on a bit more than they are doing. Is this more about the US political situation than it is about the security of the Falkland Islands in a way. I mean, the US, their equation, if you like, is how to balance the Falkland sovereignty against a stable Argentina. What do you make of the noises that are or aren't coming out of the United States? Well, I think, as as Christopher has said, I mean, the US does have to look at its own sort of politics, and it's got a very large Latino population, which it, it looks after. The fact is that when the Argentinian leadership, President Kirchner, sees that the US is looking pretty soft on the issue of the Falklands, as, as far as the UK is concerned, it's prepared to call it the Malvinas, and declares, as, as it did last week in this, in, in this declaration of the Organization of American States, that, that, that there is a need to come to some kind of solution to the problem. That's encouraging for the Argentinians, and at the end of the day, this is still a very live issue in Argentinian politics. It is constantly referred to in the election campaign that's coming up in October. And so I think, yes, it's unlikely we're going to see a repeat of 1982. But then, of course, 1982 wasn't expected, and you can never tell what is going to happen around the corner. I don't think the UK position is completely as secure as ministers would like us to believe. Without playing the conspiracy card, Christopher, how much of this is about oil? Um, it's always oil, isn't it? There's always <laughs> offshore resources, and the Falkland Islanders and the Argentinians and the British are aware of that, and so are all the other people who are getting on the consignments. I'll tell you one weapon. I say, you know, you can't go and do it. It's one weapon that the, uh, the Navy has still got, of course, and that is a missile-firing submarine. And in a previous, before 1982, uh, Jim Callaghan, uh, who was then Foreign Secretary, I think, uh, or might have been Prime Minister, he said, OK, uh, just put the word around via Brazil, because they'll tell them, via Uruguay, because they'll tell them, that we're sending a couple of missile-firing submarines down there um, that might make them think again. 
It is a terrible and dangerous game to play, but that's about the only resource we have left. If push comes to shove, uh, Christopher, with the US, do we play the special relationship card? Will we be able to withstand that kind of pressure from America? If there it is no it? special relationship. I mean, it's as simple as that. A special relationship is a, is a pragmatic thing. When it suits both sides, or certainly suits the United States, then we can start sit down and play cards with them. But the Americans own the deck on that. We heard um, from the Falkland Islands when we spoke to Sharon a little bit early on. Uh, uh, what, what's the what's the word? Not a, um, a, a nerve jarring response, but obviously there's there's going to be some concern down there, isn't there? I mean, yeah, know, she said, there. you know, I'm I'm content, uh, and and that is the Falkland Islanders are a, a pretty shrewd bunch. Uh, they don't see imminent threat. They were talking about imminent threat in eighty one, eighty two, but they don't see it now. And I think you've got to sort of balance that with what's going on in London, where there's this heated debate about the Navy, the defence cuts, etc. Um, they don't have to get involved with that. More than 8,000 Syrian refugees are now in camps across the border in Turkey after President Assad's forces regained control of a flashpoint town. Syrian officials are appealing to people to return to Jazir al-Shagur, but many fear it's simply not safe there. When uh, we are walking in the streets, uh, shouting we want freedom, we don't want Bashar al-Assad. The security feel angry and kill the people. We take the injuries to Turkish because if we take them to the Syrian hospitals, there is inside the hospitals, Syrian security, they kill them. Well, Neil Sammons, an expert on Syria at Amnesty International, fears the refugee crisis is only going to get worse. On the other side of the border over in Syria, we have um, maybe about 10,000 people, that's more than who, who have come across the border, and they're still living under trees, exposed to the elements. Last night was a terrible storm, rain, thunder, lightning and all the rest of it, and that's women, elderly, children who've been walking for days from the Jisr-Eshagor area. Well, Syria, meanwhile, has rejected criticism from the Arab League, which has described the violence in the country as dangerous and worrying. Fawaz Jerjez, Professor of Middle Eastern Politics at the London School of Economics, joins us now on the phone. Fawaz, thank you for being with us. You know the region very well. You spent a lot of time there in the last weeks or so, I know. Um, the Syrian authorities claim more than 100 security personnel were killed by armed gangs. Other reports claim it was a mutiny among the armed forces. Are we any nearer to knowing exactly what happened? Uh, no, we are not. It's a very confusing situation, and we have no independent sources of information. We rely mainly on social networks, on activists, on the government's uh, uh, own information. Uh, it's a very difficult situation, but there are certain uh, ideas that have become uh, clearer by the day. Um, we know that more than a 1,000 civilians have been killed in the last few weeks. We also know that more than 300 security personnel have also been killed in the last few weeks, and almost 10,000 uh, civilians have been uh, arrested as well. We also know that um, there is a limited, a limited, I stress limited, armed insurrection uh, against uh, the regime, whether it's in Dara'a or whether uh, in the last few days in Jisr al-Shugur. So there is escalation. Uh, the protests are spreading uh, to many parts of Syria. The Assad regime is trying, uh, laboring very hard to crush uh, the protesters. Another point we know is that the protesters are not as large as the protests in uh, Libya and Yemen and Tunisia and Egypt. That is, we're talking about thousands as opposed to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. 
We also know, despite some reports about mutiny within the armed forces, we have very, very few credible reports about any larger-scale um, uh, mutinies. We're talking about individuals as opposed to um, uh, dozens or even hundreds of security personnel. My argument is that the armed forces and the security forces are fully behind the regime. And it seems to me that despite everything that has happened, the Assad regime has a, a social base of support. I would argue between 30 and 40 percent of the Syrian public is behind the Assad regime. This is a very difficult situation indeed. Uh, Christopher, tell us a little bit more about the regime. We hear that President Assad's brother has a, a very big part to play in the situation. Then, Mahir al-Assad. He, uh, the brother commands the 4th Division and the Republican Guard. He also is very uh, pertinently sort of not necessarily in command but influences the intelligence uh, forces. Now, the 4th Division and the Republican Guard, they're the key forces in all this. There are some people who've actually said to me he effectively is handling this whole situation and that his brother, the president, isn't in absolute uh, command, as one might imagine. Uh, The worst uh, description I got of him, he could be seen later on as the Mladic of Syria. And it's quite a powerful thing to say, but it does reflect what a lot of people inside Syria, certainly the people I've spoken to in the Lebanon, which, you know, watches interestingly, uh, it reflects the sort of power of this man. Uh, Fawaz, the international community has been largely damning of the situation uh, in Syria, but they've also ruled out any kind of military uh, intervention. The Arab League are now criticising Syria's crackdown. What part do the international community have to play in what's happening in Syria? Well, uh, Libya, I mean, Syria, again, is not uh, Libya, is not Yemen. It's a very uh, uh, difficult and complex society. It's one of the leading regional states. But I think there are... uh, uh, certain fault lines are emerging now. In particular, the criticism by the uh, Arab League uh, chairman, uh, Umar Musa, and also the position of the Turkish government, I would argue, represent a major setback for the Assad regime. Uh, Now you have, I mean, the relationship between the Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan and uh, Bashar al-Assad very close indeed for the last uh, 10 years, and also for the Arab League chairman to basically come out publicly and criticize uh, the Assad regime, it tells you about the beginning uh, of a something that goes much further, much beyond that what the Assad and the inner circle um, had ever imagined. Um, it's a very serious situation for the regime because every other day you could hearing the situation, well, it will be under control, just a few more hours, just a few more days. Um, I would argue the big point to really highlight, even though The odds are against the protesters and against the opposition because, again, the Syrian regime is well entrenched. I would argue we're talking about low-intensity warfare for many weeks, if not many months, uh, to come in Syria. Okay, Fouaz, Fouaz Georges, uh, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, Christopher, just to move things on slightly, Al-Qaeda, uh, moving on to other matters, have confirmed uh, Aman al-Zawahiri as its new leader. Uh, no surprise, but maybe slightly surprising that it's taken so long to announce that. The suggestion is that there have been disagreements within Al-Qaeda itself, in, in the ruling bodies of Al-Qaeda. This man is, you know, is top man. 
he is one of the on the 22 men on the wanted list, the very much wanted list that the Americans put out in Italy. Uh, with a price on his head? Is, uh, 25, $25 million. That may have just gone up. It's one of the few sort of things that's going up in the world at the moment. <laughs> um, but it's, it's interesting that this al-Qaeda started off in the rebellions, which they haven't concluded. It is... Can I just, just make one point? Um, we now have our so-called Arab string, Spring, seven countries where the leadership is falling, yes? If you go through Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, Bahrain, uh, Yemen, Jordan to some extent, and Syria, which is under attack, Al-Qaeda never succeeded in doing that, with the exception, perhaps, of Yemen. Finally this week, the seemingly endless speculation over the future of Scotland's military bases moved uh, onto a new target. Fort George near Inverness is currently the base for members of the Black Watch and uh, 3rd Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Scotland. But reports suggest it could be lost with the Black Watch uh, moved to RM Condor in Arbroath. Christopher, uh, we seem to have been debating the future of uh, bases in Scotland uh, for quite some time now. Your thoughts on this latest uh, development? Well, it's, it's, it's inevitable. Um, I mean, Scotland has got that many bases, but we're talking about Tinkin, Los, Lossiemouth, Lucas. Now, the battle at the moment is between uh, Lossiemouth and, and Lucas, and one of them's probably got to go. Uh, Fort George, right up there in, uh, in, in, in Venice, uh, Royal Marine Condor in Arbroath. It seems a battle between the two. What I find disappointing is that the Ministry of Defence could actually knock all this speculation, and it is speculation, uh, on, on the head and say, right, when we publish the, the next round of defence spending, our review of the whole estates of the MOD, which is what they're doing now, and let's say that's the end of July, then we will have decided, but we'll not decide into a thing. Keep it as simple as that. They don't do it. Why not? Because along with the, the old Ministry of Agriculture, the MOD and their publicity machine is probably the most arrogant of all in Whitehall. Uh, James Blitz from the Financial Times, you're still with us. Um, according to the MOD, it's all our fault. It's the media. This speculation should stop because we're um, basically upsetting the troops out there in the field. What do you make of that? It's you're to blame. Well, I could spend hours on the phone talking about the relationship between, the very fraught relationship between the MOD press office and the, and, and the media. Um, I think Christopher's probably right. They could do a lot to sort of iron this out. We'll have to wait until the basis review comes out in July, then we'll know. But... It is very, very unsettling for the soldiers and families concerned. OK, well, uh, we have to leave it there, guys, because we're pretty much uh, out of time. But uh, James uh, Blitz from the Financial Times, thank you very much for joining me. And Christopher Lee, as ever, thank you for your thoughts today. That is it for this week, pretty much. My thanks to Christopher and James uh, for joining us again. If you've got any views on the topics we've covered this week, get in touch. Our email address, as ever, sitrep at bfbs.com. And don't forget, you can listen to this week's programme uh, again, should you uh, want to go through all the points uh, at length, on the website, bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. Kate Jabot will be back next week to uh, resume her normal slot here in the studio but from me Matt Teal for now goodbye and thank you very much for listening This is Sit Rep on BFBS